From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Teresa Carpenter, and welcome to the sixth iteration of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I have a very special guest. I always have a very special guest. But today I have Jake English. And Jake English, uh, he works with me here at the Security Cooperation Office in El Salvador. And I'm so honored he came on and I was able to slide him in as a guest this week. I'm going to give you guys a little bit about him. And then I'm just going to start asking him some questions. Feel free to join us in the chat. Um, you might know Jake. I know I reached out to a couple of you that I found out we had some mutual friends uh, today. Uh, so they might be joining us. But Major uh, Jacob English, he is the chief of the deputy chief of the security cooperation office in the United States Embassy in San Salvador, El Salvador. He advises and coordinates training and equipment programs with senior leaders from El Salvador's military. He was commissioned same year as me in 2006 as a graduate of the Air Force ROTC program at Brigham Young University in Utah. He started his Air Force career as the F-4 avionics engineer at Hill Air Force Base, Utah, where he was instrumental in determining the cause and corrective action of a Class A mishap of a Q4 weapons, QF-4 weapons system. He led a Pathfinder project that laid the groundwork for total asset visibility in the Air Force supply chain and then went on to get a master's degree in systems engineering from the Air Force Institute of Technology. He applied that knowledge at the Air Force Research Laboratory at Kirtland Air Force Base, where he led the acquisition of a supercomputer in support of complex satellite navigation and control calculations and served on the staff of the Directed Energy Directorate. He also deployed to Afghanistan, where he managed the purchase of ground-wheeled vehicles for the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police. He's done time in the Pentagon, where he served in the Air Force engine room, assisting in building and defending the Air Force Program Objective Memorandum, also known as POM. He then went to the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff Officer course at the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation in Fort Benning, Georgia. And then prior to this current position, he was the director of the Air Force Element and the Operations Officer for the Joint Operations course at the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation in Fort Benning, Georgia. He is also a Mormon, um, and he did two years missionary work in Costa Rica prior to joining the Air Force. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. So what I'm going to do is I just want to start off getting a little feel for your for your story, uh, where you grew up, and then how you how you found faith and missionary work and kind of how you got your start before coming into the Air Force. Sure. So I grew up in Green River, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. We moved around a lot growing up, but we lived there till I was nine. And we had missionaries that were constantly in our home. Uh, my dad had a responsibility working with the local missionaries there. And so ever since I was a little kid, I remember getting shoulder rides mm -hmm. with missionaries, playing hangman with missionaries, and just having them in our home, you know, doing their laundry or things like that, mm -hmm. where for me, I always wanted to be a missionary. For as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a missionary. And that's a big thing that, you know, in, in our faith, it's our responsibility to go on a mission, but it's still everybody's choice if they want to go or not. And for me, it was like, of course I want to go on a mission. What else would I do besides <laughs> go on a mission? Like, 
it always seemed like the right answer for me to right. go on a mission. And, and I'm really glad I did. It was a wonderful opportunity, wonderful experience. And I still feel blessings in my life today from my missionary service. For example, learning Spanish. And now I'm using Spanish every day at work. Yeah, that's and amazing. It would have been really hard to get where I am without having those skills that I developed 20 years ago as a skinny right. missionary in Costa Rica. What was that like being in Costa Rica? I mean, you're you're just this you know young kid, and you know all of a sudden now you're in Costa Rica. Uh, what what was that like to immerse yourself into another country like that? So it was really eye opening. A lot of people have a view of Costa Rica that everything's just pristine and beautiful, mm -hmm. but the reality is when you're in the streets, like there's dirt. You know, people have dirt floors and shower, mm -hmm. you know, with mud on the ground, which I never saw that in the U.S. Um, just the environment that people are in, like where the poor people live, isn't this picturesque, beautiful kayaking and mm -hmm. zip lining through the rainforest with howler monkeys. It's very much a, a difficult life. Yeah. And yet I found the people to be really friendly, very kind, very humble. And, and teachable and always willing to help me get my Spanish a little bit better or give us a little bite to eat or something like that out of the little that they had. So for me, it was a really humbling experience and helped me get a much more well-rounded worldview of what other people live like. I think that's one of the best things that we get from traveling. I know I, I speak a lot about that to you guys um, on social media, but it, it really does make your perspective so much more wider when you just get out of your hometown. And you don't even have to sometimes go to another continent. You can go to South America or you can go uh, to another state or another community. It just it really opens up your eyes to how the rest of the world sees things. Was that what influenced you to choose uh, Latin America in your later life? Or how, tell me a little bit about what happened after you did, did, uh, did the missionary work um, and then got into the Air Force. So I, I did, I served a mission in Costa Rica, came back, went to the junior college for a year in Southern Illinois, where we ended up, my parents still are, mm -hmm. moved there when I was 13. Um, from there, I went to Brigham Young University and got a bachelor's, bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And I joined the Air Force ROTC program there. And then upon graduation from Air Force ROTC, then commissioned. And I said, I want to go see the world. Mm -hmm. and they sent me to Hill Air Force Base, which is like an hour, hour and a half away from Hill Air from BYU. So really close. Didn't go that far at all. Um, but even as a second lieutenant, when I'd fill out my dream sheet of things I want to do, I was like, well, I want to go do Spanish things. And I want a job in Costa Rica. And right. it's like, there's no acquisitions because I'm electrical engineer acquisitions. There's no acquisitions jobs in Costa Rica. And I remember a captain mentoring me and he's like, your career plan is all over the map. <laughs> and if I look at what I've done, it's pretty close to what I had as a lieutenant, it, it is all over the map. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you kind of want to do everything. I have kind of gotten to do everything. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely as opportunities came along, I've, I've tried to get that Spanish thing. And mm -hmm. so when I was selected for major, I was selected as a school select, which meant I was guaranteed to go to a school. And so in the Pentagon, when I was filling out my selection for schools, I picked Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation because it was in Spanish. And I was like, I can go do this professional military education in Spanish, reconnect with, you know, people from Latin America that I've always had a love for that ever since living in Costa Rica. Can I ask you what, what it is? And by the way, um, who is also a uh, Latin American, uh, Maria Russo, uh, Ruz says, says hello. Um, 
so say we'll say hi. Um, what what was it about the culture and the people in in Latin America that I think that you were drawn to? I'm just curious. That's a good question. Um, I think so. In the United States, and I learned this from a friend at Affit who is from Colombia, who is a pilot in Colombia and a co uh, student with me. He said, in the United States, you guys view your identity based on your job. And so when you ask a kid what do they want to be when they grow up, they're thinking about a job, and the job identifies you. He said, in Colombia, your family identifies you. Mm -hmm. And, like, your job is just what you do during the day, but it's not who you are. And so that, for me, was a different worldview that in, in a Latin culture, it's more family-oriented. Um, just being here in El Salvador oh, yeah. – seeing oh, people see riding in the back of trucks and they're all just smiling and talking and happy. <laughs> and I'm like, every one of those people will be arrested in like five minutes in the U S <laughs> but they're just happy. Right. Right. The, the Latino culture is happy and it, it's a very rich and diverse culture. For me, it's very interesting learning different languages and ways of speaking throughout Latin America. Um, a little bit of that salsa and spice yeah, that yeah. I think Latinos can have where they're not just going to get pushed over. They'll, right. Hey, this isn't appropriate. And they'll share people. exactly mm -hmm. how they feel about a certain topic. You know, you're not wondering, well, I wonder what he thinks about that. He'll tell you. Right. Well, I was, I was struck um, by a, by a, a situation happening when I was driving and around here, um, if you don't know anything about driving in El Salvador, it, it tends like many countries, it's, it's much more uh, offensive than defensive. And uh, a cop made me get all the way over to the right uh, because they were just trying to move traffic. And then by the time I was over to the right, I couldn't get back over to the left. And this guy kept honking at me. And I think he, he thought he, in his mind, had given me enough room to get over. Um, but I, not being a, 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 an offensive driver, didn't think I had enough room. And he was just honking, honking, honking. <laughs> and then finally he gets out of the car and then he just sees, like, I can't speak English. I'm, I'm just like, I don't know what to do. And he was so kind. He's just so patient with me. He's like, you got it. You got it. And he just directed me and then got back in his car. And, and, and that, that was when I, after I'd been here about two days. And that really stuck with me. And someone said, you know, yes, they're very aggressive drivers, but the kindest people. And a lot of their honking is actually communicating. Like in that <laughs> example, he's saying, okay, you can come over. Mm -hmm. And I went on a road trip with some friends in Guatemala. And they would do that. Like as they're passing a semi, they would just give a little honk. Or as somebody passed them, they'd get a little honk to say, hey, mm -hmm. you can get over. And I'm like, in my culture, if somebody's hungry, yeah, it's they're mad. They're mad. Yes. I'm like, why are these people mad? <laughs> yes, they're not yes. mad. They're just like, hey, you're good. Right, Go. right. Like, it's fine. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting experience. But it definitely um, gave me a great first impression. And, and then everything up till now has, has continued to give me such an, an amazing impression of, of this country. I'm going to be sad uh, when I have to go. So after the missionary work you're in the air force you're an avionics engineer what and you, you're doing all these amazing programs and, and engineer work what got you on the path of, of the fao community now how did that happen? so so that happened by selecting winseg i when i got that school select i read through all the school options that the air force has mm -hmm. the whole manual i'm like okay what are all the options out there and highlighted the ones that were interesting to me Mm -hmm. And what I liked about WinSec, okay, I can go do school, I can do it in Spanish, but one of the things was upon graduating from the school, then you become a foreign area officer. Mm -hmm. So that was just a natural thing coming out of WinSec. And I'd heard about foreign area officer. My experience in Afghanistan, I worked in the security cooperation organization in Afghanistan for my deployment. 
With my friend Charity, by the way. Yeah, with Charity Edgar. Charity Edgar. Edgar. Awesome. <laughs> so I got to go to, then it was called DISAMP, Defense Institute for Security Assistance Management, probably, mm -hmm. which is a several-week school. I don't remember how many weeks, like three or six. I don't remember. But it's a schoolhouse that you go to. And I remember with friends were like, hey, like we could become foreign area officers with this experience we're getting in, in Afghanistan. Now, can you tell, for the people that don't know, can you tell the audience a little bit more about what an FAO is, foreign sure. area officer? So, so there's two designations in the Air Force. There's a foreign area officer and a regional uh, area specialist. So regional area specialists will do the language and everything and go do one job, and then they're back to their career field. In the foreign area officers, when I came in, it was you're going to do a job in the foreign area officer field, and then you'll do a job in your regular career field and go back and forth. Mm -hmm. And just this year, they changed it so that foreign area officers, you're doing two foreign area officer jobs, and that's your primary career field, and then you're going and doing an intermediary operational tour like every mm -hmm. third assignment. Okay. And okay. so your question is, what do we do? Right, right. right. So foreign area officers we're designed to be a regional expert that is either working in the region knows the language usually we have a master's degree in international relations my master's degree in systems engineering wasn't that it's mm -hmm. the winsec experience counted mm -hmm. kind of for that requirement but we we're supposed to understand the language the culture the people and we're the question isn't what would a u.s person do in your country if they were given this situation it's what would they do in this situation? And so our job is to bring that perspective back to senior leaders in the Air Force and in the US government to help look at things from the perspective of for El Salvador. If this happens, what are El Salvadorans gonna think about I this? See. And okay. that's where the real challenge is, is getting into the culture, understanding the history and, and even the religion and all those pieces matter when it comes to foreign relations. And so we're called, um, warrior diplomats mm. the, the state department is the diplomats but we're the the military side of that diplomatic mission i see i see so when someone decides to become a foreign area officer do they typically specialize in one region and stay in that region their entire career so yes the the there are regions and so i'm a latin american fail mm -hmm. and so my focus is this region there are opportunities to cross to a different region but that's kind of like changing career fields if you mm -hmm. will. Sure. Um, so in general, you have a region. Like, I don't know how Europe does it because there are so many languages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you learn a language, you become a European specialist and you learn French and they're sending you to Germany sure. or some other European country would be really challenging. Having Spanish and Portuguese as the predominant languages in Latin America helps because we have that language. And then also a lot of the history here is tied and so and some of the culture so i think even moving around the region you know we get some of that mm -hmm. benefit right right what has been uh, so far since being in the sco office what do you think has been some of the most meaningful experiences that you've had here as a fail so for me i'm a program manager i'm an engineer i'm an acquisitions guy like that's my background what i like about security cooperation organization is it's essentially acquisitions in a foreign language and so I'm able to bring my experience, you know, my background in systems engineering and so forth to El Salvador. I got here and I'm looking at their program and I'm like, okay, you guys do these deployments every year to Mali for peacekeeping. We're buying you some helicopters. 
but how are you going to maintain that program? Mm -hmm. And so my experience in the Pentagon was building the program objective memorandum, looking at all the pieces from a money, people, and flying hours perspective to make sure that we have a functional program built. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking that same experience here and looking at, okay, how is their program looking to maintain pilots and maintainers to go to Mali? And so since I got here, I've had, I have a third group coming, but had two groups come down and do assessments and things like that. Where are we? Where do we need to go? Mm -hmm. What are the building blocks and pieces? And essentially my passion project here is building this program that'll take several years to implement to shore up and strengthen the first air brigade in the Salvadoran Air Force so they can continue to do the peacekeeping uh, deployments in Mali. So can you summarize maybe some of the main programs of the military group? I know we've got, we talked to RAP, if you guys got to see that, my talk with the Army combat soldier, that was uh, RAP who's in the office that does our uh, humanitarian assistance program. But then there's, like you said, there's working with the Salvadorian Air Force, then there's working with the Salvadorian Navy. Can you give me some other examples? So we have Salvadoran Navy, Salvadoran Air Force, and uh, Salvadoran Army. Mm -hmm. And so there will be an Army section chief in this go, an Air Force section chief, and then a Navy section chief. And so we each manage our piece. I'm the Air Force section chief. Right. This go is so small that they don't have somebody here just as the deputy SCO chief. So Mm -hmm. I'm the deputy SCO chief, kind of over all the other SCO chiefs, and the Air Force SCO chief. So I have two hats and two full-time jobs here. Um, But other assignments, so we have a bilateral affairs officer that each state in the U.S. has a state partnership program Mm -hmm. where their, their guard is teams oh, yeah, up with a, a country yeah. in the world. Right. And so I think it's cool that Georgia is teamed up with the country of Georgia, the mm-hmm. state of Georgia. It's like easy to remember. New Mexico is with Costa Rica. So I was like, hey, if I went to the guard in New Mexico, <laughs> maybe I can get back to Costa Yeah, a lot Rica. of people don't know about that program. So basically there's National Guard units who partner with the the, the, the embassies all over the world. So here I think yeah. it's New Hampshire. New Hampshire so there's a New Hampshire National Guard unit. Right. And can you give me um, examples of some of the programs that they've done so so a lot of times they'll come down and do training with Mm -hmm. el salvador it's been difficult during covid because Mm -hmm. travel and all of that has been limited but they've also helped like they'll have their aircraft come down and participate in the air shows here sometimes if there's equipment or materials that el salvador has purchased that they're having a hard time getting shipped Mm -hmm. they'll work it out so their state partners will actually fly the assets down which is really helpful no, that, that's amazing. Very, very cool. So also, I want to touch upon some of the other ways that you've uh, been of service, because, you know, this podcast is all about people who give back and, and, and just feel that call to service, um, as I have. What are some of the things that you've done uh, throughout throughout your career uh, to give back on more of a volunteer standpoint? So um, we talked earlier today, two of the big things, uh, one is with the Boy Scouts of America, both uh, Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts. Uh, I joined Cub Scouts when I was seven years old, and I've been actively registered every year of my life since then. And so right, you know, I got my eagle right before I turned 18. And so when I turned 18, the Scoutmaster's like, hey, would you like to be an assistant Scoutmaster Mm -hmm. and continue working with the Scouts? And I was like, okay. And then he was like, hey, we got this wood badge training. Do you want to come to wood badge? I'm like, I don't know what it is, but sure. Right. And ended up being great training on leadership. 
focused around scouting, but broadly applicable to any kind of leadership. Mm -hmm. And so I've been able to build on that experience that I got back when I was 18, going to Wood Badge, which is very young, because it's for adults only, um, and continued with Boy Scouts. My, my oldest son is an Eagle Scout. My youngest just needs his Eagle Project, which he's working on now uh, here in El Salvador. They're building caskets to donate to hospitals because there's a law in El Salvador that if you bring your kid to a hospital and they die, then they won't give the body back if you can't provide a casket. Really? And so my son's Eagle Project is to build caskets so that the hospitals can advertise, hey, we have caskets, like oh, bring wow. your kids in here. If, they, if they're sick or whatever, we'll take care of them. If something does happen, you'll get the body back because we have these caskets. That's amazing. And so that's his project. And they guess that each casket will save about three to four lives. Which wow. Is, like my Eagle Project was painting posts, right? <laughs> Didn't save any lives. <laughs> but you were like, still we created a that, park. But no, I get it. I yeah. learned a ton of leadership. Yeah, and that's <laughs> right? that's something that you shared with me earlier that really resonated with me is that service is not just about um going out and, and doing all this work. There's 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 that is part of it, but there's so much more to it. There's the the sense of community, there's the and then there's the, if there's, like you said earlier, if there's something in your career that you just don't have a lot of experience right. with and you've been able to do that, right? Yes. Uh, when I was at, in Albuquerque, at Kirtland Air Force Base, um, I joined the governing council as a volunteer for the charter school that my kids were about to get into. I was trying to get them in and I went to the meeting to see, you know, if they were going to open a class and my kids could get in. And they're like, hey, do you want to be on the governing council? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and so I joined the governing council right when we got there. And I stayed on for eight years, which eight years of volunteer in the military is tough because we move around so much. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that after we moved, the, the folks on the governing council were like, hey, can you still be on the governing council while you're working at the Pentagon? No big deal. I work at the Pentagon. I may as well be on the governing council. And so I was the vice president of the governing council in the Pentagon. And then when I moved to to Georgia, same thing, like, hey, we still need you to be on the governing council. I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. But even in Albuquerque, when I deployed, I was like, hey, I need to get off. Like, I'm deploying. And they're like, no, we want you to stay on. I was like, okay. And one day they had a meeting where they were trying to figure out, I think, uh, paid leave for the staff or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the meetings was at 3 in the morning, so I didn't have anything scheduled. And I was like, gosh, I really need to go to that meeting because I don't think they've asked the right questions. And so I went in, I log in at three in the morning and we're going through and they're asking for discussion points. And I was like, well, have you guys considered the cost? And they're like, well, what do you mean the cost? I was like, well, yeah, the last time we asked this question and talked to the finance guy, he said, this is what the cost would be. And they look at the finance guy and he's, I mean, I wasn't there, right? I'm on the phone. Right. But he was like, oh, yeah, there's a cost. And right, here's what right. it's going to be. And they're like, we hadn't even considered that there would be a cost. And when I came back from deployment, they're like, Jake, we are so glad that you joined in on that governing council meeting because you added a perspective and some of your experience of being on the council for so many years helped the team, which usually the military aren't the ones that are on something for a long time and have that experience. We're mm -hmm. kind of in, right, serve for a couple of years, and then go do something else. And so – that was really satisfying for me, helping to grow a school, helping to find a way to reach our mission as we're making decisions. OK, what is our mission? We're providing high quality education to all kids. OK, mm -hmm. well, how are we doing that? And what is the proposition that we're we're considering in this meeting and how can we make sure that we're working towards our vision, and our mission? And that was great for me personally 
as a young officer in acquisitions, we don't supervise anybody. Mm-hmm. Like this is the first time in my career that I've actually been writing like appraisals on people and I'm writing on army enlisted and army officers, mm-hmm. like not even air force enlisted right. or air force officers. Mm-hmm. It's like, Hey guys, I haven't done this before. You might want to give me some feedback, <laughs> but, but I have had experience leading an organization mm-hmm. from that higher strategic level right. and making sure, you know, supervising if you will a super a superintendent and you have all this program manager experience and what you're saying to me is that you're able to take the things that you're uniquely suited for and the things that you have in your background and you take that to a nonprofit organization or to a community group and and you can provide so much value and right. experience and that's why being of service and volunteering and giving back is so important especially for for people who are in leadership positions or who want and it's win-win it enhances your career because it makes you better like when i did all my animal advocacy and my puppy mill uh you know protests i learned so much of when i just did tabling Mm -hmm. about just talking to the public handing out leaflets um when i testified on animal protection bills all of that experience made me a better public affairs officer because I learned how to be, uh, you know, persuasive without being annoying, without, you know, trying to get, you know, consensus, getting people from very differing perspectives to agree on something. And it sounds like you did the same thing with your experience with the school board. You took what you had already done in the, in the air force doing avionics, engineering, program management, and you were able to apply that to a community organization. And that's so satisfying. And it's something that um, everyone should have the opportunity to do it at some point uh, in, in their life. So going forward, what uh, do you think is, would you say if somebody wants to get involved in the community and they want to give back and they want to be of service, where, where do you think they ought to start? So I say start with what you like. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are you already spending your time on? If you have kids at home, or grandkids at home, do something with your kids or grandkids, right? Mm-hmm. If they like baseball, go be the baseball coach or the person that brings the tweet treats or whatever <laughs> volunteer right. thing they yeah. need. Um, right now at the embassy, we're short on leaders for scouts. So I'm the scout master and we've had a few folks say that they're willing to help out as assistant scout master, but we haven't had anybody step forward to be the cub master. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, guys, cub master's easy. You're like the clown. You have like two meetings. You have a planning meeting and then right. you have your meeting and that's it. Like yeah. it's, it's super simple. It's fun. I've done it three or four times in different bases where I've lived and mm-hmm. it's great. And I've told him like, if you guys want a good scout program for your kids, you all need to help in a little way. And there's jobs for people that want to work with the kids. There's jobs for people that want to work with adults. There's jobs for people that just want to do the computer thing. And I'm glad I don't have to do all of them. <laughs> I want to be the one with the kids having fun. Right. Let somebody else record the stuff in the computer and let yeah. somebody else deal with the parents that are mad. Yeah. Uh, you have comments. No, you do. Okay. You have a couple comments. Um, I mean, you may know some of these people. I, I don't. Uh, Carolina Bendak de Algeria says. De Alegria. Yes. Bendiciones. And what is, Gracias, hermana. Muy amable. <laughs> and then um, here, this, here's the next one. Uh, Valentin Mulango says, loving the episode. So, Gracias. yes. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I think the other thing that I would say that I would ask you, and I guess I want to leave you leave, leave asking you is um, what has being of service uh, done for you personally? Like how has 
your time giving back to organizations, seeing the return on investment of your work? How, how has that impacted you on a personal level? So I want to uh, go to a story that I think I shared with you before. When I was working in the Pentagon, we're managing over $800 billion. Like day to day, I managed a database with $800 billion and I was the guy that could delete the whole database, which I only did when I was allowed to. <laughs> but the idea that I had that kind of power to break stuff and also fix stuff, right? Because somebody needs to be able to go in there and fix that and that was my job. And I felt like, like really accomplished and I had achieved a lot and I'm having impacts across the entire Air Force and the chief of staff of the Air Force coming in and giving us a coin and thanking us for what we do. And so as I was leaving that job, I was talking to my friend and I was like, what do we do now? Like, where do we go to have a bigger impact than what we had here in the Pentagon? And he looked at me and he's like, Jake, when you change an airman's life, you'll realize that means so much more to you than anything that you did in the Pentagon. And so that became my new focus was that one person, things that I can do to make life better for one person. And so for me, like, I want to use my rank to help people. And as we go up in rank, that's our responsibility, to move barriers, to provide opportunities and make it possible for people to do things that they couldn't do on their own. And so for me with service, what I like about service, it makes me happy. When I'm thinking about myself, it's like, oh my gosh. I know, I got my life is so bad. Oh, yes, yes. But when I'm in there playing with the kids or I'm working in a, a community you know, like on a board or whatever, mm -hmm. and having a discussion, it's engaging, it's challenging, Absolutely. it's difficult. Oh, man. Yeah. And then for me, like, I like to use my vision, like, okay, if we stay on this path, where are we going? Is that where we want to go? Okay, where do we want to go? All right, what are we going to have to do to get there? What's in the way? And they call it mission command, right? All these things. I didn't know they called that. I was like, I just know where we want to get to, yeah, yeah. where we are and how to get there. And they're like, yeah, we call that leadership in the military. That's what you're supposed to do. I'm like, well, good, because that's what I like to do. <laughs> but for me, it's about building teams is having a vision, enrolling people in your vision, and getting the team working together to achieve that vision. Mm -hmm. And usually I find somebody else had a really good idea. I know. I'm like, that person had a good idea. Let's go do that. Right. And then I'll build all the program and the structure and everything to get there. And somehow people think it's my idea. I'm like, this is too good. <laughs> Not my <laughs> no, idea. No, I, I relate so much to what you say. I, I love it when when somebody who's working for me or working around me has this amazing idea. And then we can all kind of rally around the idea. And then everybody starts working together. I was a part of Sea Services Leadership Association. And we had those moments where there were board members that would have a couple good ideas and then everybody would rally around right. the good idea. And then the next thing you know, we have a book club or the next thing you know, we've got a new website. Um, and it's the team's idea. It's, it's everybody's it's, it idea. It is. It's everybody who's, who's contributing, who's, who has an opinion. Uh, sometimes all those opinions sort of clash with one another, but that's part of the storming and the norming of teams. And uh, it's just an amazing experience to be a part of a team. And uh, is there anything else that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you or anything you want to add? So, I mean, I would just add kind of throughout my career, like I've had jobs that were really fun and jobs that weren't really fun. And for me, the ones that are really fun are the ones where I have a little bit of latitude to operate. You know, when it's, hey, this is what you do and you need to follow these steps and do this exactly. I don't get a lot out of that. Lot, yeah. What I get, and there are people who do, and I'm really grateful for them because we need them, <laughs> right? What I like to do is get into a job where the future isn't defined and mm -hmm. that, you know, they need somebody to come in and, and you know, pave that path. 
And, and that's what I get a lot of satisfaction out of. And that's what we have here in El Salvador. The future in El Salvador, we don't know. You know, mm -hmm. our relationship with the military, the U.S. relationship with the government of El Salvador, you know, is constantly in flux. There's, it's, there's a lot to it. And for me to be able to just have a little piece of influencing that, of helping make life better in El Salvador. And then for me, you know, I learned when I was at WinSec that regional problems require regional solutions. You know, immigration isn't going to be fixed by the U.S. Um, trafficking in humans isn't going to be fixed in the U.S. The war on drugs isn't going to be fixed by the U.S. But it can be fixed regionally with all of us working together. And so my focus is there is a ton that we and El Salvador have in common. There's, you know, our risks and our challenges, amenaces, the threats to us are the same, right? And, and an attack in El Salvador affects the U.S. because it's so close. My friend asked, why is El Salvador so strategically important? I'm like, because you can walk from El Salvador to the U.S. You can't walk from the Middle East to the U.S. And so the U.S. needs to care about what happens in this region. And the U.S. needs to work together with our regional partners towards common goals. I agree. 100%. And this is why I like being at the SCO office so much. So we did have a couple people, uh, just a LinkedIn user who just gave us a heart. We got a, we got another clap. And then we've got um, here, Robert McLean, really appreciate your response, Lieutenant Colonel English. Thanks for tying in how teams of teams turn the focus of programs into people and how to take satisfaction in the work. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, guys, I don't know if you've been watching some of my videos, but I keep saying how happy I am here and how blessed this opportunity has been. It's because of people like him. It's because of people like Rap, uh, who I interviewed about the humanitarian assistance program. It's just, they're an amazing team and they have an incredible work culture. And uh, it, it really shows in the work that's being done here. And I think you just put it incredibly well as you, as you wrap this up. Um, so thank you. Thank you for thank taking you. a little Appreciate bit of time uh, to talk with us uh, tonight. I think this has been an amazing conversation. I've got one more conversation coming up tomorrow night. I'm talking to Captain Retired Thariah Kent. She is a former public affairs officer. Now she owns her own business in catering and event planning. So she will be talking transitioning. She's also founded the Navy Public Affairs Mentoring Program. So another wonderful talk about leadership and developing others. So thank you all for, for giving us a little bit of your time tonight. Um, it's like I always say, it's an honor to do this work and to bring to life the stories of, of people like Jake here. So uh, tune in again uh, tomorrow night and uh, same time, same place. Or actually, I think it's one hour later, but it's around the same time, same place. And uh, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for watching. Have an Thank amazing you. evening and I'll talk to you later. Bye.